Welcome to the Outpost Church podcast for Discipleship Training Week 2023. This year, our theme was All He Asks is Everything. Over the next few episodes, you'll be encouraged by a variety of speakers who actively lay down their lives to serve God and His kingdom. We hope that as you listen, you feel inspired to further understand what it means to follow Jesus and surrender all aspects of our lives to Him. We hope you enjoy. Again, I've, I've put this at the top of every page. Uh, all he asks is everything. Uh, to remind myself that uh, that's, that's the focus here. It's everything, right? Um, don't, yeah, that's come off. All right. Uh, Hebrews 2, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great, such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down especially the sins that so easily entangles our progress. And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, on whom our faith depends from start to finish. And and I just think it's, it's again, a crucial couple of verses of Scripture that we're not alone, we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. And so we need to strip off what slows us down so that we can actually do all that God's called us to do. And so much wants to pull us back from that. And Viv's going to come and, uh, and she's going to share a personal story, um, which will hopefully help you think about your story and, uh, and how all things are possible for those who believe when we strip away the things that aren't of God. And so um, uh, I hope this impacts you uh, in such a way that you can see yourself in God's story in a powerful way, not isolated from that. One of the things that uh, life has shown me is that if we are open to the leading of God, he will lead us in directions that are not only part of his purposes, but which are also in line with our individual characteristics, who we are as individuals and our personality. He builds within us a house as you might like to say. And the scriptures refer to that as a temple. So we look at um, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God dwells within you, as Roger's already mentioned? Well, I grew up in a household where my mother came from a strict Welsh Baptist background where church attendance involved choir practice, Bible study, various other groups during the week and attending church three times on a Sunday. Not just once in the evening if you were a young person. (laughs) In, um, not opposition, but difference, my father grew up with a very Jewish belief system where the existence of God... um, is an obvious assumption, but Jesus was just another prophet who uh, walked the earth. So discussions on salvation were unnecessary um, and also often shut down very quickly because everything hung on the belief that God rules eternally, end of story. 
Uh, discussions on spirituality were strained as one, one of my parents had experienced a very rich Christian culture um, and accompanied by some deeply significant events. My mum often talked about experiences in the spirit. Um, and the other parent denied the opportunity for such discussions. But despite this, and because we were a Welsh family, for those of you that understand the Welsh culture, music was a big part of our, our household. And so singing hymns, singing songs, um, was, was very much a daily occurrence. And so my early childhood was often grounded in songs of faith, which became a very strong foundation on which the house representing the rest of my life was built. And I also learnt that a man of Jewish belief can still sing, Guide Me, O Thy Great Jehovah, which is traditionally sung in a Christian context. So as children, my brother and I attended Sunday school and church with my mum. Um, I've often believed, always believed rather, that I was blessed having known Jesus from a very young age. But just as I reached my teenage years, um, my parents chose to move to this country town called Murray Bridge. Well, it was country back then. Um, and I became heavily involved in the youth group there at Murray Bridge um, and the local church. So Easter camp, things like Easter camps were a regular occurrence. October teachings, I don't know if any of you remember the October teachings used to happen. And I was challenged to explore the person of the Holy Spirit at one of these Easter camps. Now the speaker at the Easter camp um, was teaching on the person of the Spirit. And after one particular session, friends who I had gone to Easter camp with invited me to go for a walk in the bush with them. Now these people were very aware of the Spirit, had experienced the Spirit, spoke in tongues, received prophecy, and they really believed that it was the time in my life where that needed to happen. So off we trottled off into the bush and we sat down and they laid hands on me and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed and nothing happened. Nothing happened. Um, so they prayed again. And I, I remember not being overly concerned about the fact that nothing happened because I was secretly um, concerned that I was about to burst out into some sort of spiritual manifestation. And I thought, I don't really want that. Um, so we continued on at Easter camp. But the day I arrived home for Easter, from Easter camp, as you do, you know, sweaty and just bursting to have a shower, I jumped in the shower and it was during this very natural exercise of having a shower that I experienced the overwhelming presence of the Holy Spirit. The, the natural cleansing power of the water took on a spiritual significance. The Holy Spirit showed me that that experience was in line with the personality that he had created within me. There was no spiritual outburst, but instead a very significant change of heart, 
of mind and of spirit as I stood under that water spout. And even to this day, Roger will tell you, I'll quite often come out of the shower in the morning and I'll say, do you know what God said this morning? <laughs> so you might ask, do we have a uh, high water bill? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> so it was from this point as a teenager that um, God began building his house on the foundation that he had prepared earlier in my life when I was a child. So from that time, each step of growth in my faith has been the result of my willingness to trust God in all things. He knows my personality. He knows my desires. He knows my limits because he created me. But um, there have been times when I have trusted him with the very essence of who I am knowing that what he asked of me was challenging. It was challenging the goals that I had planned for my life, as we all do. We have our plans. We have our goals. And what God was asking of me was challenging those goals and plans. Roger's call to full-time ministry was a very painful time for me. So we had been courting for five years before we got married. I had married a rich banker. He was working in one of the the state banks at the time. I call it marriage by deception. I thought I was marrying a rich banker. (laughs) Um, But it was just after we were married that he had this call into full-time ministry. I felt that all my hopes and all my dreams were just falling out of my hands, never to be realised. As I said, we had just got married, I had married the banker, and now I was about to become the wife of a future minister. Five years of a theological degree coming up ahead of me. One of my passions is travel. And I felt that uh, my dreams of travelling the world were suddenly taken from my grasp. We were never going to be able to afford to do that on a pastor's wage. I look back now, where I stand now, and I see that God's promises to me stood. He knew the desires of my heart. And scripture tells us that God is faithful in, in bringing those to pass. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37. Delight yourself in the Lord. He knows your heart. He will give you those desires. But you must delight yourself in him. So as I intentionally chose to walk this new and challenging path, building my relationship with God along the way, he honoured the desires of my heart. I didn't lose any of those dreams, but quite the opposite happened. I have travelled more than I could ever have dreamed possible married to a banker. Our first child um, was born with the medical condition known as spina bifida. He also needed open heart surgery and he developed type 1 diabetes. 
this was a very difficult time of life and it had us seeking God for wisdom and for strength. And God didn't disappoint. He led us to doctors. He led us to people who were able to walk with us on this road. Moving interstate to one of our first, one of our first parishes was a time of life when I begged God to intervene. I did not want to move. I had a sick child who had just had open heart surgery. I didn't know this place. They didn't know us. I remember begging God not to send us. But God's presence was palpable as we felt his arms of provision holding us as we were warmly welcomed into this new community. And it was a community that we grew to love. And five years later, when it came, ta- came time for us to move, what was I doing? I was begging God again, God, please don't make us move. So over this time, I could see that God had challenged me with various tasks, all of them that took me out of my comfort zone, one way or another. But in doing so, I was growing in both my faith and in my character. God was building a house. One that would not only serve in worship, in Bible studies, in various other church commitments, but one that was growing spiritually, which was so important for me to do so that I could serve his purposes. My growth spiritually would serve his purposes. But once again, that led to a time where I had to accept a challenge from God. I began to learn that if you trust God to lead you, then he will lead you. He will equip you. But the first point is you having to make the choice to trust. There are several instances in my life where I have been challenged to be the human facilitator of something that God wants to do. One of them was a visit by a very tall and very dark Sudanese man named McCool. Uh, McCool led us into a restorative ministry in southern Sudan, helping displaced Sudanese to rebuild their lives and to rebuild their communities. Now, McCool came to Roger's office one day, and I think he pretty much um, made Roger feel very intimidated as well. But McCool's heart for his people was undeniable. Now, I could have very easily turned a blind eye, knowing that this ministry was going to be hard work and it was going to, or it could, end very badly because we knew nothing of Sudanese people, we knew nothing of their culture. But because God was the one placing the challenge... I knew that if I trusted him and allowed him to use me to build something, then something worthwhile would be built. And so it was. We formed a team of people who committed to overseeing the work. God built a new house in the form of a school, a church, a medical clinic, 
that allowed people to be rescued and his name to be glorified. For many years, um, I've had a fear of Asia, Southeast Asia in particular. Do any of you remember the movie Bangkok Hilton with Nicole Kidman? Okay, so it's a film where Nicole Kidman, who's the actress, but her character goes to Thailand on a holiday, has a fabulous time in Thailand, and as she goes to the airport, or she's at the airport exiting to come home, they pull her over. Customs officials pull her over. And they arrest her. And they put her into one of the worst prisons in Thailand. Actually, I've just jumped a paragraph, but that's okay. Um... And she is imprisoned as an innocent person. She's charged with drug trafficking. And as the movie goes, she ends up um, escaping from the prison and making her way home. But watching that movie, seeing the conditions of the prison, made me straight away think, uh-uh, I'm not putting that on my bucket list. I'll never be going to Southeast Asia. So God... That's okay. One day, um, Roger came home from a conference he'd been to in Bali where he met a couple from Adelaide who were doing mission in Bali and looking for teams to be part of their mission work. Now, Roger announced this at the lunch table and as a family, we always had lunch sitting around the table. So he announced this at the table in front of the children and... From nowhere, my response came, great, let's go. And I can remember my face going, great, let's go as a family. And inside, I'm going, what are you saying? <laughs> What's coming out of your mouth? I, met, I, I felt this immediate heaviness in my stomach. And I realised I can't take those words back. Because by now the kids' eyes are lighting up and going, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Mum's saying, let's get on a plane and go on a holiday to Bali. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Have you heard the story of Balaam's donkey in, in the Old Testament? Yeah. Where Baal, God causes, causes the donkey to speak words to Balaam to bring him back into alignment with what God has said. Balaam was being disobedient and God used the donkey to speak. I was the donkey. <laughs> I didn't like that. <laughs> the family were keen to go and I realised that I was casting my fear upon my family. With my mind pictures seeing them imprisoned in Bali prison, but God's seeing something very different. The health issues of our eldest child were our biggest concern. This trip was either going to make him or break him. The family were keen to go, and it was the year that John Howard, our Prime Minister, was actually giving out financial incentives. I don't know if any of you remember that. And so the money was there for us to go. So the donkey had spoken. The money was there. God was preparing the way for the foundations for a new house. 
God wanted to build a new house and so we prepared to go and be a huge blessing to the people of Bali. But as it turned out, this trip was a massive blessing for our family. We began our partnership with a Christian children's home known as Bali Life, but we also visited other local orphanages. A little girl called Pika lived at one of these orphanages that we volunteered at. She just happened, just happened to have the same form of spina bifida as our eldest son. Just happened. But her life had turned out very differently. Her father had put her on the streets every day to beg money for him because as a child she needed to, to earn money. She had no value to him other than the earnings that she received as a beggar. And as a result of sitting on the street for long hours each day, one of her legs had atrophied, so it had begun to wither away. And she had to have that leg amputated, leaving her balancing on the other leg with just a stick. Now, our eldest child made the connection that his outcome was very different because of the medical treatments that he'd been able to receive here in Australia. Life changed for him. He, was gone, he had gone from being a very depressed young man, not knowing what life had for him, seeing Picker and understanding how fortunate he was to be here in Australia and receive the treatment he had. So life changed for him. But life also changed for Pika as we be at, began to find ways of supporting her with her medical needs. You see, God isn't looking for trained people. He's looking for those who are open. He's looking for donkeys. Those who are open to being led to his people for his purposes. He does the equipping, all we do is respond. And I'm sure you've heard that many times before. But we must be very, very careful that we only do what he is leading us to do. That we don't do those things because they make us feel good. Any motivation can lead us into something or any other motivation can lead us into something that he's purposed for some other donkey to do. And also it can be quite dangerous if we're doing something that God hasn't called us to do. Going to Krobakan Prison in Bali was one of those. So you might have heard of Krobakan Prison. It's where the Australian Bali Nine were sent, it's where Chappelle Corby spent all of her time when she was arrested for trafficking. It's the major drug trafficking prison in Bali. I remember the first time I was asked to visit Khan prison. Chappelle Corby had just been arrested in uh, October of 2004. The Bali Nine had been arrested in the April of 2005. And our mission friends from Adelaide had asked if I would go with them to visit the Australians in prison. Now, I knew this was another challenge that God was placing before me. Which prison do you think was going through my head at the time? Which movie do you think was going through my head at the time? 
was I going to accept this challenge or not? I remember going into the hotel room where we were staying, uh, searching for a quiet place where I could just be God and I. I knew that this needed to be something that he was asking me to do because this ministry was way too dangerous for me to be done, or for me to do if it wasn't being led by God. I lay out on the bed with my arms open, <laughs> waiting for God to tell me. I lay myself before the Lord, waiting for him to tell me. Nothing happened. I didn't hear anything. So I opened my Bible and began reading. In Matthew 25, 34, there's a story of the sheep and the goats. And this is where I found my answer. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. That was all I needed to know, that this was something that I should not say no to. To be obedient, I needed to say yes. Because this was another house that God was building. And so with a lot of fear and anxiousness, I made my first visit to Krobakan Prison, widely known for its gangs, its drugs, its violence and its riots. It was quite daunting as we made our way through the first lot of locked gates, each with their own check-in points. I was perspiring, it was barley, I was nervous. And at the first checkout point, they gave a, put a stamp on your arm, an ink stamp. And you had to show this stamp to be able to exit. If you didn't have the stamp, you could not exit. I was perspiring. Do you think that stamp was going to stay on my head? What do you think I was worried about? <laughs> I was concerned that stamp was going to disappear in all the perspiration. So I remember trying to see... Could I make a copy of it on my other hand? That's how paranoid I was, so that I had two copies of it. I remember sitting on the floor in the visiting area with each of my senses, my sight, my hearing on high alert for any sign that uh, told me I needed to run for the nearest exit. But as I spent time with the Australian prisoners during that visit, God gave me a peace that spoke of walking alongside of them, not running away from them. That visit remoulded my heart and it changed my life. And my journal entry for that day was, I'm not totally joyous about being here, but I am feeling better than yesterday. Give me your heart for how I should feel. Lord, give me your heart for how I should feel. The song by Brooke Fraser, you all know it, I'm sure. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom's cause as I step from here, walk from earth into eternity. That was my mantra for the next few weeks. 
There are many journal entries from this time where I declare my empty, joyless heart before God, questioning the worth of the labour he was asking me to do. But as I've learned to respond to God's challenges, he has revealed his purposes. Since that visit, God has allowed me to journey alongside condemned men and women who have both rejected and accepted Jesus. Together, Roger and I have presented Alpha courses, Bible studies, church services, and performed baptisms in things like bathtubs and blow-up swimming pools. We have also witnessed the aftermath of violence, blood, weapons, and suicides, which are also commonplace um, in such an environment. We have stood with two young Australian men as they prepared themselves for execution. This ministry has taken its toll, but God has given us what we have needed, both emotionally, physically, and spiritually, to serve him in this way. Every time God has asked us to help him build, my natural reaction has been one of fear. Fear of man and their criticism. Fear of not knowing how and my inadequacy. Fear of not knowing the bigger picture. Well, God, how far do we plan? How far do we go with this? Scared of God. What is he going to ask of me next? Psalm 127 reminds us that God is the builder. We are the humans that he uses to build, and it usually involves building us as well. If God is the builder, we can trust him to be the good father that he is. As Keith Green once sang, unless the Lord builds the house, they labour in vain who try it all, building anything not according to his call. Unless the Lord wants it done, you better not work another day, building anything that will stand in his way. Be sure that you are not just doing what you want to, building your own house on the sand. We need to see the challenges that God gives us as opportunities to be who God created us to be. I love the book of Matthew because it's full of the words that warn us against the standards of the world and instead directs us to a way of living that will fulfil us both in relationships and money and our character, a biblical worldview. Matthew 7.24 Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash." This warning is to be building your house on the rock of God and not building a house on the sand of self-reliance, doing things the way you want them done. 
God is often blamed for, thing, for doing or saying things that he didn't say and didn't do. We sometimes use God to validate our own desires and then ask him to bless the outcome. So our plan, and we want God to bless it, how do you think that's going to work? There is a God we want and there is a God who is. And we often confuse the two in our attempts to serve him. I'll just leave you with this thought. If it isn't something he is calling you to do, then you are building a house on the sand which one day will fall with a great crash. Whatever God is inviting you to, know that he is the builder and you are the labourer. Thanks, Viv. Did, did you get the line? There is a God we want and there is a God who is and they are not the same God. All he wants is everything. Can I ask Viv to share that? And she's going to go a little further um, to talk some specifically about some prison stuff in a second for a purpose, okay? And, um, but what I want you to think about is um, what God's calling you to that you're too fearful to step into. What is God calling you to that you're too fearful to step into? See, Viv and I are just two ordinary people. We used to be young. Um, we just got old for some reason. I don't know how that happened. But every step of our journey, we have trusted God in what he's calling us to. Because we realised at uh, a really young age that there's no point building anything that God hasn't purposed for us to build. What's he asking you to build? What's stopping you from stepping into that? What fear... Just take a couple of minutes to think about it. What's he calling you into? What's stopping you from stepping into it? Our testimony is that God uses people who seem like they're ill-equipped to be used. but he's the equipper. So the, the challenge just from this session, and now Viv will come up and share again, but um, is that don't limit what God wants to do through you. And what you're doing, ask God, is this where I should be? Because I want to be where you want me to be. Because that's going to be difficult, but it's going to be blessed. And I've, I've seen so many people Limit what God can do through them because of how they feel. And I just want to challenge you on that. That Viv's testimony is one that all throughout her life she has stepped into her fear, trusting that God would build a house. And he's kept building. God's got so much more for you than often you can ever imagine because we don't trust him to build the house. All right. You want to go, go again?
Uh, we got some slides with this, and um, again, I, I, this is just a really a challenge you personally. Okay, this is the whole point of this to to think more deeply about all that God wants is you. He wants all of you, right? So thank you. Okay, I want you to remember yourself at the age of 18, maybe 19 or 20, and I want you to think back to what was the most reckless thing you did. As an 18-year-old, you threw caution to the wind. What was the most reckless thing that you did? Something that you hoped no one would ever find out about. Something that you knew was probably illegal. Something that might have been a little risque or out of character for you. Have you all got something? You haven't? Those of you, those of you that don't, let me just remind you of a couple of illegal actions that you might have taken part in. Underage drinking. Eating something at the supermarket before you paid for it. Downloading movies, music, using your phone while driving. Driving over the speed limit. Don't say you've never done that. Or how about this one? Jaywalking. It's illegal. It's illegal. <laughs> But some of us might have something in our previous lives that we know is even worse, that we've done, that if we had our time again, we would choose very differently. None of us is sinless. And even you know, around that age, especially around that age, 18 to 20, we justify our actions by believing, it's okay, everyone does it. Everyone does it. It's okay, I won't get caught. I've done it a million times and it doesn't really matter. And particularly around that age, like I said, 18 to 20, there's a certain sense that we are invincible and nothing bad's going to happen. Would you agree? I want you to hold that thought. In 2006, I was a mother to three children aged 14, 12 and 5. Roger was an ordained minister, had just accepted a call to a new church and so as a family we were once again settling into a new church community. As part of this new church placement, he was asked to attend a minister's conference in Bali that would specifically address the area that the church wanted to work in in mission. And as I've previously shared, travelling to Asia was something I said I would never do after watching this Bangkok Hilton um, and the character given a life sentence in a Bangkok Bangkwang prison. And as I've already shared, Roger returned home and Balam's donkey's mouth was opened and uh, our next stage, our next challenge began. So off we went to Bali, our suitcases securely locked, sealed, cable ties, everything, as we took our first mission team through the customs at Bali Airport. 
as I've already explained, uh, Vicky and Richard were living in Bali and uh, they had invited me to attend Khan Prison with Vicky. And knowing the risks and dangers associated with this, I had to pray, but I eventually said yes. I knew that I'd be li living in God's will by saying yes. Matthew 25, 31, 40, as I read before. Slide three. Who's doing the slides? Anyone? There is a... Have you got the copy there? When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a, separ as a, sh a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come those who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. So I had already been classed as a donkey. Was I now going to be a sheep or was I going to be a goat? I made my decision and so that was it. I was going. God really convicted me of the fact that we belong to the kingdom. And the kingdom, being part of that kingdom, involves a higher way of seeing, a higher way of thinking, a higher way of speaking, and a higher way of acting. Karabakan Prison is located on the Indonesian island of Bali. Also known as Hotel K, the prison was built in 1979 to hold 300 inmates. As of 2017, it contains over 1,400 male and female prisoners of various nationalities. More than 90% of the prisoners are Indonesian. 78% have been convicted on drug charges. Each prisoner receives a piece of fruit and one cup of rice per day. Water, additional food, mattresses to sleep on, bedding and all toiletries must be supplied by the prisoner or the family of the prisoner, which for Indonesians is usually not possible. For foreign prisoners like Australia, Australians has to, has to be provided by somebody who's visiting them from Australia. My first visit to Karabakan, I've sort of already briefly touched on. I went in with Vicky and three other members of the mission team that had come with us. The other members just happened to be a lawyer, a federal police officer, and another woman called Jo. 
as I've already expressed, I was filled with fear and what ifs, knowing that the previous week there had been a riot and a prisoner had been murdered in the visiting area, which is the area we were going to. I remember saying to Joe that, it, that we had a lawyer with us. We had a federal police officer with us. We should be able to get out, shouldn't we? The first visit, I met several of the Bali Nine, young Australians who were arrested in Bali on the 17th of April 2005. And they were charged with trafficking, eight, trafficking 8.3 kilograms of heroin out of Bali. The average age of these young Australians was 19, with the youngest being 18 years old. The airport has signs warning that drug trafficking results in the death penalty. But the prolific and obvious drug culture in Bali contradicted and neutralised these warnings and told these young Australians that the airport warnings were merely a formality. As we all do, thinking back to what I asked you first up when you were 18, as we all do, they justified their actions by treating it as a money-making exercise. It was a means to an end. It was a means to a new car. It was a means to impressing a girlfriend. It was a means of getting on in life. The thinking that we all experienced kicked in. It's okay. Everyone does it. People are trafficking in and out of Bali every day. I won't get caught. I've done it before. It doesn't really matter. The difference this time was that they would be caught. Life was going to look very different from now on. Life was something that all nine of them were going to have to fight for. A fight that some of the nine would win and several of them would lose. One of them has been released. Three of them have died. Five of them are still imprisoned on life sentences. And in Indonesia, life is life. So this was the first of many visits since 2008 and the beginning of a ministry and the growth of relationships with people that Roger and I have continued until this very day. So the question is, why do we do this? Why do we go and risk being caught in a riot in a prison? Risk being murdered in a visiting area? Why do we do it? People often say to me that what, what we do, what I do, must make me feel really good. That whole, you feel good and that's why you do it. And the first time someone said that to me, I was really confused because I definitely was not there to feel good. I was fearful. And I said to them, if I wanted to feel good, I wouldn't be here at all. This is the last place I would come to feel good. And part of the answer to that question of why we do what we do is found in the reading from Matthew 25, 31, where Jesus calls us to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, take in the sick and the stranger, and visit those in prison. So initially, my response to going into Krobakan was out of obedience, despite an incredible fear that I felt. 
As time went on, it became more a case of supporting the young Australians and other nationalities that we had grown um, in relationship with. They knew they'd made a bad decision and they needed help to find ways of living with the consequences of their choices. And you can see in this picture, the youngest one, Matthew Norman, is the far right next to the interpreter. Matthew needed help to buy a white shirt for his court day appearance. Simple practical things like that, so that he could be presentable to an Indonesian court. The same with Siyi and the same with Tan. Tan is the one who has since died in prison. In the 14 years that we arrived in Bali, since we arrived in Bali, we have seen the development of a community of Christian faith that was established and led by one of the members of the Bali Nine, Andrew Chan. Now, some of you might be familiar with Andrew's name. This Christian community includes inmates from countries such as Thailand, the Philippines, Nigeria, South Africa, America and New Zealand. Now, Andrew led many inmates, including two members of the Bali Nine, into a new understanding of life in Christ. And it was our privilege to participate alongside him in numerous baptisms which occurred within the prison and in the provision of support for Bible studies that both the men and women inmates of Korobakan Jail. So here you see Andrew and a very young Roger baptising one of our Filipino girls in what they call an Indonesian mandi. So a mandi is a square-shaped bath that's actually quite deep. So we've led Bible studies, we've run an alpha course, we regularly visit foreign inmates who are new to Korobakam. Do you want to keep the thing? It's another slide. And you find that um, when a new, a new inmate first arrived, next one on. when new inmates first arrived, they are um, very shocked. They go into it. They go into a time of of shock. Um, not realising that this was the consequence of their, their choice. We had one girl, an Australian girl, who we, it took several visits before she would even talk to us because she didn't know who she could trust. Thankfully, she is now home and um, we can talk to her in Australia. Okay, that's all right. That's all right, I'll keep going. So as the initial shock of imprisonment wears off, a common response from an inmate is that, I need to do a reset. They need to do a reset on what they understand spiritually and who they think God is. Who they, who they think God is. Informal Christian gatherings and Bible studies provide a place for this to happen and they're actually allowed by prison administration. Because in Indonesia, you have to have a spirituality. It doesn't matter whether you're Hindu, Muslim or Christian. You cannot be atheist. On your ID, you have to say what religion you are. Sorry? Yeah, crazy. So this happened with uh, Bible studies that we did and other gatherings. 
Now, as you may know, Andrew was executed along with Mayur and Sukumaran on the 29th of April 2015 because of their involvement with the Bali Nine. Our last conversation with Andrew involved his acceptance of God's will, whether that be a miraculous re release, rescue, or an inevitable death. And he asked that we continue to disciple the Christians inside Krobakan Prison. This uh, next slide really sums, and, sum, sums up Andrew. The gospel is less about how to get into the kingdom of heaven after you die and more about how to live in the kingdom of heaven before you die. Andrew created the kingdom of heaven in a rank, dangerous, horrid prison. The kingdom of heaven was there and it was through his ministry, his obedience and his faithfulness to the word. In particular, he asked us to make sure that the plans for the new church were realised. He had begun plans to rebuild the church building inside Khan, and in usual Andrew's style, had begun to plan how it would all happen, even though there was no financial backing. As it turned out, God had plans too. Surprise, surprise. The architect of the new, newly built uh, Nurarai Airport, I don't know if anyone's ever been to Bali, the airport was crappy. All of a sudden, there's a beautiful new airport there, if ever you fly into Bali. Well, the architect of that airport was arrested and charged with numerous offences, which led him to being sent to Karaba Khan Jail. So guess who was the architect of the new prison church? God has a very funny sense of humour. Several inmates had experience in the construction industry, so they became the builders, and other willing inmates became the labourers. Various Australian and American churches rallied to fundraise and provide the money needed for materials, and the building was complete in time for the prison Christmas service, December 2016, after Andrew and Myuran's death. But since Andrew's death, the youngest member of the Bali Nine, who is now 36, so he's been in prison for 18 years, has carried the mantle that Andrew wore and has ensured that the new church is functional and well used by the Christian prison community. Now this ministry could easily be seen as a ministry of works, but it's, it's more a ministry that God has planted, grown and developed into his wider plan for all people to be reconciled. People to be reconciled within the prison system. People who have come from wherever in the world, made bad decisions, found themselves in Khan. There is a church there, a church community, where they can experience reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them, and he has committed us to the ministry of reconciliation. He has committed us to the ministry of reconciliation. Our ministry is one of reconciliation, bringing those whose life choices led them away from God, helping them move back to a point 
where they can see God at work in their life despite their circumstances. And yet we still have Christians saying to us, why are you going there? Why are you supporting drug dealers? Why are you supporting drug mules? Why are you supporting murderers? Where do you think Jesus would be? Let me share with you the story of Sheila. Sheila's one of the, f- the female inmates. And she too was a daughter of God, but she just didn't realise it. Sheila was born into this world as the result of rape. And everything that happened in her life was a reaction to that knowledge. Her incarceration was the result of her trafficking trafficking drugs into Bali. And whilst she was imprisoned, she discovered that she was HIV positive. Now, Sheila was a dancer. She loved to dance and had a very specific style of dance which everyone who knew her had seen. So whenever we saw Sheila, she would be wanting to show us how she danced. But as the disease began to ravage through her body, Sheila became a skeleton who could barely walk, let alone dance. And day by day, things were getting worse. The prison authorities did not have the resources to treat her. There's no medical centre. And they refused to allow her to be admitted to hospital for treatment. So her health deteriorated to the degree where bodily functions became uncontrollable. Prison guards made the decision to permanently handcuff her to a rail in the bathroom. And it was the other Christian inmates who cared for her, cleaning her and trying to feed her. One night, one night the inmates contacted me in Australia and told me what was happening. I contacted someone who was on the ground in Bali that I heard had just finished YWAM, the Youth with a Mission course, and had just started discerning what her ministry in Bali would look like. Unbeknown to me, this lady was a palliative care nurse who had experience with HIV victims. She managed to visit Sheila, and after dealing with resistant prison authorities and paying a few dollars and wading through a lot of red tape, had Sheila administered, admitted to hospital. Now, Sheila knew that she was dying, and she told this mission worker that she would die soon and that she was going to hell. The mission worker told her that wasn't true because Sheila had given her life to Jesus and so she was his child. This became a topic of conversation for several days until one day the mission worker went to the hospital and Sheila exclaimed, I know where I'm going. The mission worker expected another conversation with Sheila about Sheila going to hell. And so she responded, okay, Sheila, tell me where you're going. Sheila's response was, I am going to heaven. I have seen him. I have seen Jesus. I have danced with him. As she weakly began the dance moves from her bed that were uniquely hers. 
Jesus had revealed himself to Sheila in the quietness of a hospital room. And this revelation had brought emotional healing and eternal hope. Three days later, I received a call to say that Sheila had died peacefully and was dancing her special dance on her way to heaven. There are numerous stories similar to that of Sheila. The babies that are born in the prison and removed when they turn two. Christabel, a Christian sister who died of typhoid because the prison refused to release her to the hospital. Brett, who died of heart disease because he had no money for surgery. Alex, who became bipolar and schizophrenic because of the conditions of the prison. And currently, Osh, who needs surgery for an ovarian cyst and possible cancer, but doesn't have the $4,000 to pay for it. This type of ministry that we do is full of unknown happenings. And the prison community is a unique and organic community in its own right. The stages of life as spoken of in Ecclesiastes mirrors the prison world as lives continue on between the horizons of birth and death. In the 14 years we've been there doing reconciliation ministry, babies have been born. Inmates who have become close friends have died. The guilty have been released. The rehabilitated have been imprisoned for life. The unfairness and corruption is palpable, but amidst it all, we seek to keep our eyes on God and search for an understanding that will bring reconciliation to God's imprisoned children. Our recent trip in December, we had four girls baptised. One girl was Catholic. One girl was Muslim, one girl was Hindu, another girl was Christian. We were able to baptise them within the women's prison. As Christians, we are all called to be Christ-like, to follow Jesus' example in everything we do, everything we say and everything we believe. Following Jesus' way isn't always easy. Even if we live in a Christian community, We must remember not to make God the being we want him to be so that life is comfortable but instead see God in all his beauty and holiness challenging us to exchange what we want for what he wants us to be being moulded by the breath of his spirit speaking into our lives. Let's not create the God we want but instead serve the God who is. This is what it means to serve a servant king, living in that space of reconciliation. This ongoing ministry continues to teach me what it means to live with grace. It's more powerful than condemnation. Kindness 
that is stronger than cruelty. Mercy that is mightier than judgment and love that is braver than fear. We're going to break for lunch in 10 minutes. Um, if we were to spend a bit of time just praying into some of the needs, obviously there's things from what you just shared. Um, would you be happy to give us a, a couple of current, whether they're names uh, or just particular needs that we can pray into around our, our table groups? being taped that'd be good this, this story um, is one is what God's called us to just two ordinary people who just said you know what God what what you want they don't stand out okay see they're inspiring see faith hope and love I figure are fairly inspiring words right here we go. Acts, Acts chapter 2, you know it really well. Starting at verse 22. They devoted themselves. Not overly inspiring. It's not faith, hope and love. It's not sanctification. It's not righteousness. It's not justification. It's not um, uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. So it's not any inspiring words. It's just they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with gladness and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who have been saved. Uh, we always get to this point of this passage when it's read and, uh, and, we, and we look at the, you know, um, the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and, and all of these things and we've got to do all these things and once we're involved in all those things, then God's going to add to our number daily, right? When we come under the teaching and when we come under, um, when we just spend life together and all of those things are super important as what they did, but it's the first three words that were the, the deal breaker. They devoted themselves to that. See, in, in the Christian life, we have to devote ourselves to all that God calls us to. And so often we just devote part of ourselves. We just devote a little bit that's left over at the end of the day. We just devote a little bit on Sunday because that's all I've got this week. And sometimes we shortchange what God wants to do in and through us. And I just read that again just this week. And um, they devoted themselves. It was like, I'm all in. And I'm all in for the apostles' teaching. And I'm all in to the community of people I'm now doing life with. Like, this is my group of people now. I'm all in 
to the breaking of bread, that we're going to have fellowship together and we're going to break and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. I'm all in for this. I'm all in just to be part of a person who prays in this community. They devoted themselves to this. And I was just struck that if we don't devote ourselves to what God calls us to, then we can't expect the results that God wants us to have in the life of his church. Now, I'm not saying everyone leaves their job and becomes full-time ministry and, like, that's not what devoting means. The devoting themselves quite simply means I'm all in for the will of God. My business is God's business. My study is God's study. My marriage is God's marriage. My children are God's children. He's given me so much and I need to be an incredible steward of what he's given me, but it's he who has given it to me. And I'm devoted to that. And so often I just think we sell short the gifts that God gives us. See, there's this parable in um, Matthew chapter 25. You would have heard of it, um, I dare say. It's called the parable of the talents. You know the story? Right? Easy story. There's a master, and it actually says at the beginning of that, and he owns everything, right? And then he gives out of what he owns to three of his servants. One ten, one five, one two, depending on the version you read, right? And he gives to them, and he tells them to invest that in the kingdom of God. See, the master, God, has owns everything, and he's invested in you. And the end of the story says he comes back and he's going to ask you, what did you do with what I gave you? That's going to be a pretty confronting question. Uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, we're launching a new um, campaign at our church. We have this thing that we call um, Heart for the Kingdom. And we started just a couple of years ago and it's just a major focus for our church uh, for a particular time. It's like we've got this Heart for the Kingdom and one of it was about a whole lot of rebuilding and a whole lot of stuff and we saw God do incredible things. So we're a church that are quite small and they gave over $200,000 to do some stuff in four weeks, right? So it was like nuts. And so we've got another heart for the kingdom uh, coming up, but this time rather than people giving us money, we've decided to give them money. So we're going to give $10,000 away on on a Sunday um, to people within the congregation. So we hope to give $100 to 100 people. And the whole idea is that this is God's money that he's giving to you to invest in his kingdom. What are you going to do with what God gives you? Now, the overall principle is everything that we have from God is a gift from God, and it all needs to be used for God. It's for his kingdom purpose. So our our prayer through all of this, and I'm still writing some stuff about what this is going to look like and what all of this means, um, is um, we want people to pray about this $100, which now is a little bit different than you giving us $100, and what do you think God will do if you ask him with this $100? So we did this 20 years ago in another church, and we've talked about South Sudan, and we did some stuff in South Sudan. Well, we raised $70,000 from $100 to build a school and a medical clinic in a church in South Sudan. That's where it came from. God can do incredible things with a small amount.
when we give it back to him to say, God, what do you want me to do? So here's what I want you to write down and think about. What has God invested in you? And what does he want you to do with it? What has God invested in you and what does he want you to do with it? Now, rather than you falling asleep because I'm just going to keep droning on, because I know that happens, I never visit anyone in the afternoons after lunch anymore because I'll be sitting with someone and I'm just going, yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Afternoons are awful. So this is what I was thinking I would like you to do. I want you to go and find a spot for 10 or 15 minutes. And rather than just write this down and then go home because you had a full-on day Monday and you had a full-on day Tuesday and there was a treat yesterday and God was telling you some stuff in that. God's telling you some stuff today and he's going to tell you some stuff tomorrow, right? And I know conferences, you go home and it's unbelievable and then you forget about it because you just get on with the, you just get on with your life, don't you? So now I want you to have 15 minutes. So you're not just going to the next thing. And then you can just pray and think over, okay, God, what have you invested in me and what am I going to do with it? Just spend some time really seeking God on that now and start to write it down. Because this is God's investment in you. We should never take that lightly. This is full on. So what is that for you? This might be easy for you. Maybe you're feeling really challenged about it. But I just want you to spend 10, 15 minutes... In here or in that room, you can sit here, that's okay, wherever you are. Just get away and take this really seriously right now. What's God invested in you and what does he want you to do with it? Okay? So a couple of things happened then. One, you closed your eyes and you had a good 10 minutes sleep, right? Because it's, it's afternoon. Um, maybe you check some emails or text messages, I don't know. But maybe God said something to you. And uh, see, when God created um, the heavens and the earth, um, he thought about it first, I reckon. He thought about it first, like... He thought about what he was going to do, I reckon. And then he probably did some plans and all of that. But he spoke it into being. It only happened when he spoke it into being, with action. So I was just wondering whether some of you would like to speak this into being. What did God say about what he's entrusted to you and what he'd like you to do with it? As a gift, when we've gone through it. Uh, one of the things in uh, the prison, and, and Andrew Chan certainly said this a number of times to us. Here's, here's a funny story. So we've got our son with us, and, uh, and, and Tom, is, he's, a, he's on the edge of life. He's a good kid. He's not on the edge of life. He's just a really good kid. But um, we're sitting in jail, and Tom comes in with us. We're sitting on the floor. All of these tr- drug dealers, murderers, we're sitting in this circle... And Tom's sitting next to me. He's 13 years old. Andrew Chan's sitting there. 
and I was just talking to some people, and Andrew Tran, for the next 20 minutes, was telling my son about Jesus Christ <laughs> and that he needed to come to faith. And he just didn't waste an opportunity to share his testimony. And uh, so my son hears that. Um, and they're sharing our, our life with someone else is an unbelievable gift that God gives us. And a daughter... So 2 o'clock is here. Um, we'll, have a, we'll just have some questions. If you've got any questions for Viv particularly, because she's really good at answering questions. Um, uh, any questions, that'd be good. But can we just... I did want to share just some of these. If you were looking for something to read, right? So this is a book called Why Do You Think the Way You Do? It, it just looks at, at why do we think... Why does Western society, why do people think the way they do? Where does that come from? It's a great resource, right? This is really one just about culture. And it's just it looks at culture and why is culture the way that it is and how do we speak into varying cultures, which is especially for teenagers, which is a really good resource. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this is about restoring all things. Um, a number of these books are by a guy called John Stone Street, who you probably would have never heard of but an amazing thinker and writer, right? Uh, very, very good. Making sense of your world. So we have a lot of stuff that we want to communicate with the world and I don't get the new world because, you know, and I want to learn how do I communicate in a new way. So this is a great book about doing that. This is just cultural apologetics again. Looks at our culture, what's going on in our world, how do we reach into our world. And this is an oldie but a goodie called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. It's a classic you have to read it a few times to get it gold, right? Just get it on Audible Books and put it in your car and just soak it in, all right? Just some resources that are we found awesome, all right? Some really good books. Certainly about culture and witnessing into a culture. So there are um, prison ministries, organisations. So in South Australia, there is one called Kairos, which is a prison ministry that you can join and they visit prisoners. So that would be a way within South Australia to be able to begin to do that. So Kairos is the name of the group. Um, part of what I was saying um, when we looked at that passage from Matthew the part about visiting the prisoners jumped out at me and I, I definitely heard God's word in that. But that might not be a mandate that's placed on you. So one thing that I've learned is that the need is not always the call. So there might be a need in this particular area, but it's not necessarily what you are called to. Somebody else might be called to it. And so if you jump into that area, you might be taking the spot that somebody who's called to that area is meant to be doing. But the Matthew from Matthew 25 not only lists prison ministry, it also lists, it lists ministry to the widows, to the orphans, to the homeless, to the hungry. So you'd really, like I said before, you would really need to make sure that's where God is leading you into prison ministry. Otherwise, it can be quite damaging psychologically, not to mention possibly physically. You really need to make sure that's where God wants you to be. Okay. Oh, there's carols behind bars and so where we have a, 
a number of people go and every Christmas they make biscuits and go and sing in every aspect of the prison and it's a, an awesome night and with some people from our church that are involved in that as well. So there are some, those are opportunities if you'd like to. All right. Hey, can we just say thank you for the day? Um, it's been a privilege to be able to come and share with you um, and be a part of this. Um, hopefully God has imparted something to you out of our stories and uh, what he's placed in us Um, because that's all we've got really Um, we're no superstars Uh, we're just two ordinary people who got too old too quickly Um, (laughs) but who unbelievably love Jesus and think I've got another 30 years of doing this stuff at least and I'm looking forward to every one of those days uh, because it's an unbelievable privilege. I'm, I'm looking forward to heaven a whole lot more because how good is that going to be? But serving God here, being that remnant with you, oh man, what a privilege that we get to do that. So thanks for letting us be a part of your life today. It's, uh, it's awesome.